Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready. Thanks for sticking with us in the off-season. We are going to bring you the best off-season content we can possibly muster. And this week, we're going to be talking some engineering. We're going to talk some contract law. And we're going to get some listener feedback from you guys as well. So uh, me and Matt will be in the shed here talking about some of the correspondence we've received from you. Before that, We're going to talk about Lewis Hamilton's contract negotiations, what Sergio Perez can expect um, at Red Bull, given that he's only on a one-year contract. And we'll talk a little bit about the tracks and the contracts they have during 2021 and trying to adjust around this uh, global pandemic and the the surprises that the schedule throws up. Uh, Before that, though, to start the show off, We're going to be talking to Stuart Mitchell from Racecar Engineering Magazine, and let's bring you that interview right now. And I'm delighted that we are joined in the shed by Stuart Mitchell from Racecar Engineering Magazine. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning to you guys. How are you doing? Very polite of you to not correct me because we are (laughs) recording this in the afternoon on the 12th of January, but uh, we won't be focusing too much on any current or breaking news. Delighted that you're joining us back in the shed again to add to our armory of tech news. And I guess we'll start by getting your views on these outgoing 2020 cars. Uh, As Matt was pointing out to me earlier, you know, these could be the fastest ever F1 cars in history and the fastest F1 cars we're going to see for some time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And the, the, when you look back at 2020, 
obviously it was a very compressed schedule and all of that, but the guys, they, they came out, they gave us an awesome show at every single track that we went to and the cars are just blisteringly fast now. And, uh, and interestingly, they've been as close as they have been for, for many, many years as well. So throughout the 20 cars on the grid, um, they've been within about three and a half percent of nominal pace throughout the whole season. So it's pretty impressive stuff. Yeah. And um, from a racing point of view, we've gone through an era where everyone has complained about these, these large cars, these hybrid cars. They're too fast. They're too cumbersome. And and they can't race. And we've had a season where despite Lewis Hamilton going off and claiming his seventh world championship, hashtag 44, hashtag goat, um, he... The, the racing has been fantastic. I know he dominated the championship, but from a wheel-to-wheel point of view, we've had hardly any tracks or racing where it's been a procession and no one can get by and no one can race, which is just counterintuitive, even on the old school tracks, even at Portimao, Mugello, um, well, forget about Imola. But generally, we could race these cars, Stuart. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is actually, it's sort of a twofold thing because one is that, uh, of course, these cars are just getting better and they, these guys are designing elements of the car to behave better in traffic as well. They're starting to learn more about it. But also, um, with a compressed schedule and a lower number of races overall, every point and every opportunity is worth that little bit more, obviously, as a percentage of overall number of races. So when you've got only a handful of races to actually make the difference, you're going to push that a little bit faster and you're going to push a little bit harder throughout that weekend. Um, and you'll see the guys going wheel to wheel and they just, they want it more. Okay. So I'm a little bit curious now. Talking about uh, specifically the midfield, because I know you say like 3%, but you're, you're that 3%, that encompasses Mercedes to Williams, right? That's right. Yes. But if I looked at, let's say position six to position 12 in the midfield, has it ever been that close? Because to me, that was where the most amazing things were happening in the racing. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So that so-called midfield, which includes <laughs> the likes of, yeah, from Alfa Romeo all the way up to, um, uh, say, some of the, the other guys around that, the Haas, the Williams, you know, these guys, albeit them being, say, three or three and a half percent behind Mercedes, they're actually only about 0.75% between each other. So if any one of those teams' nominal output uh, over the course of a weekend drops to 99.24%, they've lost a place. And 9924 yeah. is pretty close to 100%. So that's, that's the, the margin of error that they've got to, um, to, to work in between uh, you know, taking their place or three or four or five spaces, in fact, um, to, to losing it all. Is is it something inherent about the current regulations? I mean, when it's when we look at like data points, it's sometimes it's useful to just take away the the top and the bottom. So if we take away Mercedes and we take away, um, say the Haas, Max. yeah, take away take away Max and the Mercedes, and take away <laughs> some of the bottom cars as well, and focus in on that midfield. Is there something inherent about this season's regulations that has allowed such a tight midfield battle? Not specifically this season. Um, it's been so the the regulations have been what they have been uh, since the 2017 changes. So it's been an evolution since then. So 2017, they had that the change of bodywork that made for the wings that we've got now, made yeah. for the front wings that we've got now, and just lots more scope. So this is just people learning a lot more about how to get their car behaving the way they want it. 
um, and also taking more risks as well in terms of aerodynamic stability and sensitivities across the car um, because they know that those risks will pay off if everything all stays in place, for example. So um, it's, it's a very, very challenging uh, set of conditions in that midfield uh, because those guys have got to take more risks, but the rewards, like I said, because only 0.75% difference between them uh, are huge if they make 1% or 2% gain. Yeah, it's good. And so what we ended up seeing, Matt, was we would see different teams kind of pop up to that best of the rest tag and, uh, and, and be fighting for the podiums. I mean, how many podium finishes did we have this season? 84 different podium finishes, I think. Was it that? <laughs> it was quite a lot. 84? Well, 100, 1,000. Now, can I ask real quick, um, looking back at other regulatory eras, it often turns out that there are unintended consequences to the changes they make that allow the teams, uh, one team, like, you know, obviously everyone thinks immediately of sort of Braun and the double diffuser. But it, it seems like there were some uh, some areas of the car that were left out of the usual bounding that occurs in the regulation set. And do you think it was that maybe contributed to why the teams were able to get closer with such a diversity of design? There, There is and there isn't. The boxes were rather large compared to what they were like before. Um, so, for example, the space behind... The, the nose of the car uh, that runs down towards the front floor. Um, there you'll see a lot, of, um, a lot of what's called the skirt design coming on board many of these cars. And that, that, for example, was an area that was left free in the regulations that slowly and slowly and slowly was, uh, uh, was adopted by various teams. And that makes a, makes a huge difference uh, for the onset conditions the barge boards as well yeah. as what the, or the air going underneath the floor for example would you mind just explaining um, that's, boxes that's of... for me sorry Stuart. would you mind explaining boxes when you say boxes are these like 3d geometric spaces in which they're allowed to operate so i guess some will be red you can't touch it some are green and you can essentially yeah absolutely that so um you have a the cars all have a very generic shape that looks very similar because they fit within those boxes so the wings are the same size for example um but when it comes to the boxes that uh that that have freedoms in them so the barge board area has a lot of freedoms uh you can manipulate the geometries and the shapes and the sizes of things quite a lot and that gives you uh, it gives you the opportunity to, to develop your own philosophy for yeah. how the car should perform in those areas. I just love the the concept of these engineers, you know, looking at the looking at the the, gr- the green areas that they're allowed to build on and really going mad. Reminds me of a Friends episode. They were trying to stop Phoebe from ruining the party with her organisation. So they said, well, you're in charge of cups. So she took that small area and she made a whole cup themed party and went mad. Uh, like with the winglet wars of like, I'm trying to think of like 2006 kind of era, was it? Where, yeah. w- w- what happened there? Because they, they they tried to restrict aero, but then they left gaps in the regulations, which meant these tiny mini wings were just popping up everywhere. Yes, yeah. Well, when you go back to those sets of regulations, they actually had, uh, it, it was actually bizarre because obviously they had the, the, the width of the wing was limited. Yeah. Um, but what you could do within the, the, the two barriers was basically free. Mm. Um, so you didn't have a Y250, for example, which is the space between uh, the, the actual loaded planes on the front wings that we have now. 
um, there was there was no there was opportunity to get, get downforce from absolutely everything, um, and that's where sort of the the nostrils popped up yeah. on, uh, for example, the the BMW, um, and some I think the McLaren actually had some nostrils as well. Ferrari didn't, but they had some other tricks going on back then. Uh, so there was a lot of different philosophies going on in that that space. You give people yeah. freedom, give them an inch, they'll take a mile. And and obviously, F one engineers, very clever people, don't seem to care at all what the car looks like. It is simply the shape. And if it looks like an unwieldy bat wing, or in Caterham's twenty fourteen case, a uh, an an aid of some sort, a personal aid, then they don't mind at all. They don't care at all. <laughs> now, uh, last week we had Alex Brundle on. And he proposed, and I don't want to spend too long on this, but he, he proposed, we asked him, what areas of F1 would you get rid of? And he said, no aero above the floor. So he said, you can get lots of efficient aero above the floor. Obviously, the aim is to not affect the car behind. But I was thinking about it as I slept on it. And I thought, well, if you say, okay, all your downforce has to come from the floor, we would get the most bizarre floors in F1 history. Like they would go mad creating things. They would, absolutely. And... This is where the argument of 2022 comes along because right. the, the, the amount of energy that, that the floor should be able to generate in terms of downforce is significant. So if you're going for a floor-specific car, you need to keep that platform absolutely perfect or as close to perfect as you possibly can. But they're also banning things like um, uh, hydraulically interlinked suspension, which at the moment is actually critically important to keep the car's platform absolutely stable so that all the aero was working. So suddenly you're going to have a car that's behaving very, very differently uh, and also having this dependence on the floor, which will change things up quite a lot. Okay. I, I want to dig into that a little bit if I can. I know um, they got rid of, they, they banned Mercedes Frick, and that was a front rear interconnection of the hydraulically interlinked systems to keep the platform stable. Yeah. But you're saying that it's still allowed on either the front or the rear axle. I thought Red Bull had reverted to Belleville Springs, or but they're still using a hydraulic heave damper. Is that correct? It's Yeah, so this is where the, it gets a little bit more complicated. So when you talk about Frick, you're absolutely right that Frick in, in, in its previous incarnation uh, has been banned in, in that specific layout. But you can still use hydraulics to control roll from uh, left to right. So they have hydraulic dampers now that actually obviously maintain the platform front and rear, uh, sorry, not front and rear, uh, side to side. And that's what's, um, what, what will be banned. So they'll have to have each corner operating completely independently. Wait a minute. So this hydraulic system doesn't, wasn't that effectively active suspension then? It's a it's a passive way of actively controlling the suspension. That doesn't that make sense. A passive way of actively <laughs> controlling. It. Let's go back to the the Williams. I think in the early nineties that had the active suspension. So yes. So the idea is basically as the car's rolling, you will mechanically underpower right the car so that the it stays flat and therefore the aero works properly. I, I think I've got yes. the idea there. And it was Nigel Mansell's car, wasn't it? It was. And yeah. he it was just he said it was just incredible to drive and and actually hard to drive because i guess you can then use all the downforce and go ever faster were the cars when you talk about the cars using this kind of passive active suspension which i still don't get (laughs) as a phrase were they getting close to that kind of effect it was really improving the aero and downforce through the corners 
Yes, well, that's what they have. They have now is mm. a is a hydraulic unit that basically connects the left and right hand sides of the suspension. Yeah, and so once you, as you're steering towards the left, it will load up the right hand side, and uh, that will try to maintain the platform. But I'm, assu- stable. I'm assuming what makes it not active suspension is it, it's using some existing motion of the car to to load up the side that they want to load up under more pressure. Yes, it's not it's not a not a system that's yeah actively preloaded or electronically mm. controlled or anything like that. It uses the hydraulic system on board the car uh, that that has uh, that, that is mechanically influenced. Yeah. So, so it's so almost almost accidental. It's like oh, the hydraulic pressure just built up on the right hand side, making the suspension more stiff on that side. For example, yeah, but it's usually for damping control um, rather than sort of trying to add stiffness to the. The, that corner for example okay and, and that's going to go away so what are we going to see when it goes away um conventional suspension so to speak um as as formula one you know will will attack it it won't be conventional of course but it, it will just mean that they will have to pay a lot more attention to the design of each corner um because they won't have this interaction to take care of behaviors that um that, that otherwise wouldn't be able to be controlled all right, I'm now going to ask the kind of question that I become uh, either famous or infamous for, depending upon who you are. 17 point. But currently, <laughs> to be clear, I can link the left and right corners, either at the front or, or at the back, hydraulically, so that they're, they're influ- they're, um, they can influence each other as I'm, in a, as I'm going through a turn. Yes, that's right. In the 2022 regulations... I'm not allowed to do that, but I would still be able to use, for example, hydraulics for my bump and my damp, but I just can't connect them across the axle or it's all got to be mechanical. There's no hydraulics at all. Well, from what I've read, and these are just what the FIA have released at this stage, and that is just that interlinking interlinking of suspension to control platform, i.e. to try to keep the car flat. Um, will will no longer be allowed in the same format that it exists already, which is a link between the left and right-hand sides or the front and the rear, depending on throttle or brake pressure, for example. Things like that can no longer be manipulated. So anti-dive geometries will have to be built into the suspension uh, geometry itself rather than uh, relying on hydraulics to maintain that platform under braking, for example. And, and there's one more element. Um, there's a bump, there's a damp, and then there's also Formula One runs with a heave element as well. And, and, and is that also going to be required to be mechanical or are they going to be able to use a hydraulic heave element or have they not, are you not sure yet? I mean, I'm not entirely are... sure how, okay. how the, the, the final set of regulations will, will turn out. But what they don't want to do is they don't want people spending the kind of money, time and effort to try to keep the platform as flat as it is now. They want that to be left to the driver. And so when, when a racer is driving any other type of race car that doesn't have this sophisticated interlinked system um, what happens is they have to control the behavior of the car under braking through the corner and under acceleration as well so they can't rely on the car to maintain the platform uh, where they can just absolutely bury it for example so to speak so they will have it will be left up to the drivers to manage the behavior of the car a lot more 
So how much you get on the power is going to affect the, I always forget between like pitch and your, what's the side to side one? <laughs> if I'm dipping a wing, which is <laughs> That's roll. That? That's roll. Okay. So I have to think about the roll because the less roll I have, the more my downforce is going to be working. The more I pin it and lean on the tires, do I, do I lose effective downforce? Is that what I'm fighting against as a driver? Yeah, so what what you need to for the for all of the aerodynamics to work, um, really and truthfully, you need straight ahead air that's nice and clean. Right. So you need to be out there by yourself, essentially, and you need to not turn the steering wheel. <laughs> and I know that might sound bizarre, but yeah, you that's the turn. optimum condition, of course, <laughs> for all of the aerodynamics across the car. Yeah. And so you actually want the car to be in a straight line for as long as possible, which means that when you're cornering, you don't really want to be carrying loads of yaw or carrying loads of roll or anything like that because your aerodynamic platform is just not working and for these cars for example now in 2020 the cars are super sensitive to this and that's why what happens is you see a car that's super loaded up and then for whatever reason it seems to just snap Ah. and just pirouette off into the sunset that's because these cars are ultra sensitive aerodynamically um, and they they reach that threshold once you break that threshold there's no coming back from it but they're trying to reduce that Okay. And they're also trying to slow down the cars a little bit as well, which is a side effect of not being able to keep that platform. So Matt's going to ask an interesting question. I'm, I'm going to just slightly interrupt to, to dumb it down again. Um, you mentioned you don't want too much yaw. So that is whether the car in the same horizontal plane is like pointing left or right? That's right. Yes. Okay, okay, good. So if you were sliding, then you've, got, you've changed your yaw. So if you're slightly hot or slightly oversteering into a corner, suddenly you haven't got the straight on air anymore, even though you're traveling Mm -hmm. forward. So your downforce is compromised. And this is what's causing that kind of that snap or contributing to that to that snap. That is fascinating. I'm really glad I've just got this opportunity to sit with an expert and like dumb it down to my level. Sorry, Matt, continue to take it up to a a level our listeners are more comfortable at. Well, no, I I just wanted to uh, ask a clarifying question, which is essentially what you're saying is the 2022 platform and boy, do I have so many questions, the more I think. The 2022 platform essentially is looking to give the driver a longer transition before the car has that snap. In other words, it should give them, relative to the very, very sensitive arrow that they have now, where you're loaded up, you're loaded up, and then it's gone too quickly to catch. The idea is to give them a little more of a gentle glide path or a transition so the driver can make more of a difference in those turns. Or, or is that just an accidental consequence of taking away this active hydraulic suspension, active passive? It's, it, it is and it isn't. That's not, that's not just suspension. In fact, it's, it's very little to do with suspension when you talk about the uh, onset conditions of aero onto the car. So if you're in your, it doesn't matter what suspension you have, your car doesn't you're work. Right, yeah. So... Um, Principally, what they want to do with these, by, by lowering the overall downforce potential, you reduce the overall sensitivities or the potential of sensitivities as well. So if you go towards a tunnel-based system, i.e. the floor working working harder to actually make the overall downforce, you are less sensitive to, um, to uh, the car in front, for example. Gotcha. Because ah, right. the car in front pretty much only disturbs or most of the, the disturbance comes on the surfaces of the car. So cool. that's where that 
Right, we're going to move on to a term that you mentioned in our little WhatsApp group chat that neither me or Matt understood at all. But first of all, I would like to be nosy and ask you what's going on in the world of race car engineering magazine. Now, your your title is the deputy editor, is it not? That's right, yes. Okay, so your job is to usurp the existing editor and take over eventually. But whilst you're doing your, your bidding for your general, uh, what is race car engineering up to at the moment? What can we expect? Um, so in, we've just launched the February edition of Race Car Engineering, which has uh, an awesome feature on the McLaren MCL35. And that takes all of 2020s, uh, all of the investigations that we did in 2020. So everything from Barcelona testing to the very last race. So that, uh, that really dives deep into the story of 2024 McLaren and their sort of quote game of inches approach that I call it, <laughs> uh, which is uh, step by step by step by step making those improvements to the point where they took third in the championship. Well, I was going to ask the motivation. Is it because they have such a good story of climbing back to third or is it because from an engineering point of view, they've got a particularly interesting approach? that you focused on it's, it it's both so they have the, they had an interesting approach but it, that approach was also partially forced by the FIA because 2020 was so bizarre we had so many races in such a short time um the FIA were telling people to homologate stuff left right and center at specific times so as much as it was part of McLaren's strategy to have this sort of game of inches approach it also was put forced by the FIA, which meant that they, for example, turned up at Mugello with a wing that wasn't really ready for the rest of the car. And then they had to bring the rest of the updates for oh, Germany, I for example. That. Yeah, so I remember that the talk of them having an upgrade and it, it disappearing. Yeah, and, and it was, I think, even more complicated because they were going to lots of tracks where they don't have much historic data to use as comparison. And at times when they're normally not there. Yeah, absolutely. That made a big difference. And if you look at, for example, Germany, I mean, an F1 car has never really been characterized to work in the rain, in the wet for uh, at 11 degrees Celsius. So <laughs> it's as much as they have the capacity to, to cope with that, it was very much a case of, right, whoever stays on the track and points it in the right direction uh, will, will be able to keep it going. And obviously traction was an issue there as well. Um, so yeah, it was a very bizarre one because and also the tires uh, are an interesting one in, in those kind of conditions because if you get through your rubber, you then don't have any capacity to maintain heat in the tire. So yeah. as you reduce the amount of rubber that's that's remaining, the sensitivity of the tire goes up. So you actually have to drive even harder the, <laughs> and you're reducing grip because you've got less rubber. So you end up in this spiral basically to try to keep the tires on uh, and those who manage to keep them on for a little bit longer than everybody else managed to keep it in the right direction. Uh, that's hoping you can hear is Matt trying to uh, get his credit card details in for a subscription to Race Car Engineering Magazine. <laughs> the notes uh, will be in the show notes um, and should be below the video as well if you're watching the video. How does it, how does it work, uh, Stuart Mitchell? Because I, do I have to go to a shop? Do I need to go to WH Smith's? To, uh, is that still a thing? W. Is, that still open? is that still open? Yeah, it is still open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Pretty much, uh, pretty much every W eight Smith across the UK will have race car engineering on their shelves, and or we you, also yeah. sell it directly from the website. 
And, and, and you personally hand deliver it as well. So that's good. That's a bonus. I, yes, yes, of course. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, go and check out Race Car Engineering Magazine. Um, now, Matt, uh, you are going to ask him about a question you failed to Google. Googling let you down. I did not fail to Google it. I Googled it and did not find an answer that was uh, satisfactory. And yes, I'm ignoring the tires despite my predilection. <laughs> um but you said that James Key was using this term driver resolution, and I'm assuming that it's got nothing to do with photographs. What exactly do you think he means by that? So driver resolution is a concept that is quite hard to describe and even harder to, for the drivers to explain to their engineers as well. But essentially, you get to a point where you're, you're driving the car on instinct you're no longer getting the feedback necessary for you to make calculated decisions to drive the car. And that is a sensation that can be derived from problems with the car in terms of its, uh, its setup, for example. You're just not feeling what you need to feel coming through. Um, but it's also a, a function of the speed of these cars. And so now that we're in the third generation of this set of regulations with the aero that we've got now and so on and so forth, these cars are just so fast to the point where the drivers lose this resolution and through the high-speed uh, corners and just go on instinct. Right. So if I may propose an analogy, it's like when your hand falls asleep and then you reach and try and grab, you just can't feel anything. So what you're saying is that the information coming through the steering column, coming through the bottom of the car, through their seat, is faster than they can is coming too fast for them to process it. So the car starts to feel numb to them and, and they can't, they can't, they can't rely on what they're feeling to help them get through corners, to help them with braking and stuff like that. It all has to either be pre-calculated or cross your fingers and hope you don't bend it. Yeah. It's, it's more of a function of the speed of all of those things rather than the cars being sort of insensitive, for example. Um, so when you get in there, it will give you tons of feedback because of how, say, quote, tight the whole car is. Um, but in this case, it's just the speed. The speed of, of the, all these corners are coming at you, and, of course, you're battling on track. Um, the drivers actually have to, to just go on instinct in, in some of these cases because the cars are just that fast. So certainly through the high-speed stuff, you're holding a breath, trying to steer at the same time um, in some cases. So, uh, yeah, these guys are going through a, a pretty tough time. Right. So I'm presuming he's not going to be mentioning this unless he thinks he has some kind of a solution for it. What now, obviously, it's going to be not a problem into 2022 and even probably not into next season. But what approach were they taking to help their drivers with that? Uh, well, it's it's actually it's taking those drivers up to that next level of elite athlete. They're all pretty good yeah. at it already. Um, that's not to say that there isn't anything that else that could be done. Of course. Um, racing drivers have a tough time in, in Formula One cars. So they just need to work a little bit harder to try to get these guys to 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 be able to take the, the abuse that these cars are giving them. But next year, the cars will be slower. Uh, and obviously, the year after that, we'll bring in a brand new set of regulations for the chassis and the aero design. So realistically, um, it's it's going to go down from here. But it's it's impressive to hear the likes of James Key, who obviously his two drivers are, Carlos Sainz and Lando Norris, um, not necessarily struggling. I wouldn't say struggling because it's not just them. It's everybody on the grid. 
um, but reaching the threshold of what human beings can pedal around a racetrack, really. That's that's actually pretty phenomenal when you think about it from a, a technological point of view. Because then what do we do once it gets to the point where, you know, there's only so far that we can just improve training. At some point, we just have to go, well, no, it's either AI or we just go back to more simple systems, slower cars. Yeah, well, that's obviously the solution that the FIA are looking yeah, into and, was that. and everything like that is, is the, the latter. But realistically, um, you know, when you, when you think of the, the likes of these 20 guys that drive around these tracks in these cars, uh, if they aren't the best at what they could possibly do and try to keep this car on the track and not lose resolution, um, then, then who is kind of thing, you know, like you said, are we going to, are we going to end up with a super soldier kind of driver, an AI type robot thing, some sort of Terminator behind the wheel? I don't know, but these guys, uh, we're getting to that threshold where humans just can't, can't control these things at that kind of speed, or we're getting up there to that limit where the resolution is lost. And, and then Matt, that talks about basically the, what is the soul of F1 as a sport? What do we want? Yes, we always want an engineering challenge but we definitely don't want to lose that human element where the driver is just ballast and we have to give him ever increasing tools and sensitivity to handle what is essentially a rocket launch yeah well what i find fascinating is the speculation always was and you can go all the way back and it's always the fia gets concerned the cars do fast it's going to be too dangerous we need to slow them down sometimes they have a good approach to that other times they just take a chainsaw to your floor like they did in the 90s and mess everything up for everybody. But what's interesting to me is that it was it was always to me uh, G-forces that were ultimately going to limit how fast these cars were going to go. But now hearing you say that, I think it might not. It might be the actual human processor just will not be quick enough before we get anywhere near that G-force limit through corners. Uh, yes and no. Um, obviously, there's there's techniques and technology mm-hmm. out there to to help people deal with G-force. So um, there, were, there have been discussions in the past about racing suits, including um, things like pressure gauges and pressure systems on board to try to keep the blood flowing where it needs to flow to keep these drivers turning the <laughs> steering wheel when they need to. Um, those kind of discussions came and went when drivers um, basically took driving more seriously and were and, and sort of worked on the, the human element of performance. We were yeah. just getting to that threshold now where it's just the sheer amount of information that yeah. these guys are trying to process coming through their eyes and through the the gearbox, the feeling, the sensations, the vibrations, steering, everything like that. Um, and it's all happening very, very quickly. Um, so through the high speed stuff, you'll hear sometimes these drivers will, will lose resolution and they all have their codes about what's going on inside the car. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's only so much technology that can bring them back past that back from that threshold. Well, wonderful to to have you on and, and absolutely fantastic to be uh, producing content with Race Car Engineering Magazine. And uh, we hope that we can get you back on not too far into the future because I would love to uh, just get a specific take on how we think the world is going to shape out in the in the um, in the in the world of 2021 regulations. Uh, but just in in brief, you know, having a look at where we've come from and where we're going, we're going to see. In 2022, uh, an era of the drivers suddenly having a, a different role to 2020, and it's going to be interesting to see. I think which drivers can can handle that. I think we'll. I think we're going to be surprised 
if we see our current crop of drivers in what sounds like a very different challenge? Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be very, very different for so many different reasons. So in the same way that someone who drives a GT car jumping into a formula car that's so aerodependent needs to change their driving style. Well, this, these two different types of aerodynamics will, will have a very different approach to driving style as well. They'll be less sensitive um, to obviously part, uh, to, to being in traffic, for example. Yeah. So it's going to go down from 50% loss of overall downforce or aerodynamic efficiency, should I say, to about 10% loss. So that's going to make a massive difference. So you're going to see these guys approaching each other much quicker. Um, they'll be making moves earlier like they did back in the day. Uh, so we'll see, um, we'll see a lot less of the DRS based overtaking that seems to take forever to do. So should be all good. Should be interesting. I was actually going to ask the moment you said that, uh, in the old days, they used to tune the DRS when they would show up in practices. Is that something you think might happen even next year as we have sort of this, um, hybrid regulation on the way to 2022 are they are they going to have to do might they drop it all together or or change the very nature of it because it will be less necessary um it, it won't it won't be less necessary uh it, it'll still be as critical um because obviously you just want to be as uh you want to lower the drag as much as possible when you can but when it comes to the overall sort of performance strategy it will change ever so slightly because they will be more mechanically dependent, uh, mechanical grip, that is, um, because they don't have that quite as sophisticated aerodynamics, especially on the back of the car. So uh, you'll see them straighten up, um, probably straighten up a little bit earlier than they did in previous seasons, um, not being able to carry wide and then just stay on that wide line quite as much as they did before. So uh, it'll be a little bit more point and shoot, I imagine, um, if the cars are dramatically out of the window but they will claw back most of the uh, the potential of the car by using diffuser designs and things like that, the back of the car to get it to behave itself again. Fascinating. I am looking forward to getting you back into the shed and uh, taking us through exactly what to expect from the 2021 regulations. It can get confusing when they announce regulations, you know, ahead of time. A lot of the chat we've had today has been 2022 regulations <laughs> and you forget that 2021 is just muscling in there saying, hey, yeah, no, me too. Me too as well. And of course, it got yep. confusing when they delayed the regulations because of COVID restrictions and and, and all that kind of thing too. Um, so hopefully you'll sit there and unpack it for us um, sometime in February. Uh, where can people catch up with you online? It's um, Race Car Engineering on Twitter. Search for that. But where are you, Stuart? Where do you hide out online? <laughs> I hide out very well uh, under stew.mitch under pretty much every platform that I have. Um, so, uh, yeah, if you guys want to hear my random babblings, <laughs> then, uh, feel free to follow me. I do want to hear that. Stu.mitch, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thank you, guys. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Absolutely fascinating engineering chat from Stuart Mitchell there. Hopefully we'll get him back very, very soon so I can get my head round exactly what's happening with those 2021 regs. But more pressing things are happening in the news cycle. Tracks are starting to be announced. Tracks are starting to be cancelled left, right and centre already. We don't know when the season's going to start. People are already talking about April and it makes you wonder how those tracks are going to survive. We also are finding out a little bit more about Sergio Perez's contract at Red Bull. Seems like definitely only one year. And of course, everyone is speculating about whether Sir Lewis Hamilton will in fact be staying in Formula One. To help us solve all those mysteries uh, is Peter Wright from Digital Law UK. Peter, thank you for taking the time to speak to us in our little shed. Not at all. Great to uh, be back and... uh... Hello, everyone. And uh, I just wanted to start off by saying, uh, you know, you guys have done a fantastic job this year. You really, really have. Oh. Um, you know, earlier in, in, 20, you know, in 2020, when I was literally starting to lose my mind with no Formula One, you guys were still there <laughs> churning out loads of content. And then the race reviews last year were absolutely spot on. So th- thank you to the whole team. Uh, I think you've been a lifesaver for uh, all Formula One fans. Oh. You really have. Oh, Peter, that is absolutely delight, delightful to hear that from you. Uh, Matt is uh, still with us on the panel, of course. And you'll remember, Matt, that sinking feeling, having just done like four solid months of off-season content to go, OK, let's uh, do another off-season. Let's just do it all again. It worked the first time. What could possibly go wrong? And then at the beginning of last season, you jumped on as part of that off-season content as well, Peter, because we should be clear here, it's not like you've got spies in the Mercedes camp or the Red Bull camp, but you do give us a good breakdown of of basically of contract law and, and what's happening with these guys. And wild speculation from an educated source such as you, totally fine for us. In fact, it's more legitimacy than we deserve. Indeed. So what we're going to talk about today, obviously I haven't seen uh lewis's draft contract or anything like yeah. that but it's just the the benefit of the experience in seeing how these things are very often um negotiated um and uh also i just uh, you look at some of the um we're going to do some speculation today but some of the wild uninformed speculation in the press i think at the moment really doesn't help if we, if we look at some uh, publications okay so let's start with lewis hamilton's contract sir lewis hamilton i beg your pardon um, my my feeling is that he is going to sign. It, it feels like Mercedes are all set up for a, a Lewis Hamilton, Valtteri Bottas setup. They're continuing with their black livery, which is in support of increasing diversity in motorsport and within their their organisation. Everything feels like it's Lewis Hamilton 
centric. So what are the potential holdups? Because, well, we're used to those negotiations going deep into a season with Lewis Hamilton. I don't think it's ever gone into the into the off season before. And, and certainly, you know, we're now getting liveries and testing liveries. What potential holdups could we be looking at, Peter? Well, first of all, I think the fact that this is almost the 11th hour, I mean, it wasn't so long ago that drivers would sign a deal, not for the year coming, but for the following year. So you'd sort of sign a deal now in 2021 for 2022. So the fact that we're only a matter of weeks from the start of the season and he's got no deal is is a bit of a concern. It's not unheard of. Let's not forget that in 1993, Ayrton Senna turned up at the first race of the season with no deal with McLaren and then just proceeded to work on a race-by-race basis for most of the year, getting a million dollars a year. Um, I don't think that's going to be the, the situation with Lewis, but for anyone out there who's starting to sort of gnaw their fingers to the bone thinking <laughs> there's no contract, yeah, it, well, I think there is an agree. I, I almost, it almost looks like as far as Lewis and Mercedes are concerned, do they want to race this year? Of course they do. And I don't think there's any, I would be surprised if, for example, money is a factor at this point. Um, I think it's more going to be the duration of the contract uh is it going to be one year two years he's always had three years in the past um i've read some speculation this week saying oh it's a one year that they've offered um very often you open with an offer knowing that you have a red line so it could be that mercedes is thinking two years um i mean it could well be that lewis is looking and thinking actually do i want three years or not i mean it's um that that will be one major issue i think is is just the full-on term how long is this going to run i think the other thing that might well be tied up here and which this could be a a sticking point and could be a reason why it's difficult for them to actually get through this could be more around issues with regards to intellectual property let's not forget that lewis is starting to get involved in an awful lot of things away from the track so you know if when lewis signed his first contract it was just to to race cars as fast as he possibly could and that was as far as it was really going to go now he is a brand um, you know, he's got interests in the uh, music industry, in fashion, uh, and it comes down to it. There's, there's the element of the, the use of his name, the use yeah. of branding, what may or may not appear on his race overalls. You know, he might be saying, look, I, I want to promote X, Y, Z on my overalls. Um, and that was, for example, again, a major issue 20 years ago with Ayrton Senna. Um, uh, his ex-manager did a very interesting um, interview last year where he was saying that that was groundbreaking, the deal he did with Banco, Nas- Banco Nacional back in the mid-90s, because, of course, Ayrton had different overalls, if you look at the photos, compared to his mm-hmm. teammates. Um, so it could be that there are issues there with regards to that sort of element of IP, and I can imagine that that would be a more difficult nut to crack by far. Well, you're talking about Lewis Hamilton and Ayrton Senna, arguably among the most, the very most marketable F1 drivers in history, um, certainly as as far as kind of fame goes. So this kind of delay, whilst unusual, we think it's the kind of scale of megastar brand that Lewis Hamilton is is bringing makes this unusually complicated. So, you know, we don't need to panic too much as as Hamfosi, as some of the panel are, (laughs) that that these things aren't happening. I, I love the prospect of them just getting to, say, winter testing and going, well, we don't have a contract. We also don't have another driver lined up because we're still talking. So that prospect of like a Lewis Hamilton with no contract just going, well, I'll just do the winter testing gives gives a tenner. I like that. <laughs> cash in hand. Yeah, cash in hand. <laughs> so, okay, well, let's talk about the, the negotiations. So from Lewis Hamilton's point of view, 
there's kind of a, a big sports star mentality. You know, you look at the basketball stars, the NFL stars. It's not a case of wanting money. A lot of the time, it's always it's about just uh, having their value appreciated. So there might be an element of, well, he's saying I'm a seven-time world champion now. That has to come with a, an increase of some sort because I, I'm now statistically the most successful driver of all time. You know, could that be a sticking point? Because you've then got Mercedes going, yeah, but we've got to make a bunch of redundancies for the new regulations and the wage caps. Uh, ex- absolutely right. So I think there's issues certainly probably with regards to um, that sort of recognition, uh, his status. Um, and I think that could indeed actually be tied up with the future direction of the team just generally. Now, this actually, I think, potentially comes into a few of the issues at the end of the season for Mercedes, where, of course, George Russell jumps into the car, does very, very well. Um, that coincided with Valtteri Botas having a, a poorer weekend, um, and indeed a poor end of the season, um, I think it's fair to say. And a lot of speculation that uh, he's now on the last year of his deal. So it could be that you're looking at a new driver coming into the team, be it George Russell, be it um, uh, Esteban Ocon. And then that it could be that Lewis might be saying, well, look, as, as the, uh, the established lead driver here, I want to have a say on how and when that happens. Ooh. And I can imagine Mercedes turning around saying, well, no, that's something that actually we reserve as to the team to make those decisions. And it's not really going to be anything that you're going to have influence on. But we know that drivers can get a little bit upset over this. Don't, let's not forget, you know, would Michael Schumacher have left uh, Ferrari uh, were it not for Kimi Raikkonen being signed and in the way to, in, in the wings? Um, you know, the, the potential arrival of new teammates, um, again, Alain Prost arriving at Williams in 1993 was enough for Nigel Mansell to say, I'm not having him as a teammate. So, you know, that element can be quite, um, in terms of drivers and them feeling that, look, I've been here a long time and I want yeah. to have this this input means that they feel there is a bit of a, a clash. And you can imagine that being a fairly major stumbling block because there will be a change, I think, at Mercedes in the next couple of years. Matt? Yeah. Well, I find this interesting because I'm recalling that when Hamilton left McLaren, one of the biggest issues, which it almost seemed like a joke, but it wasn't, was that he wanted to be able to keep the trophies that he won mm. on the track. And that that was a, that turned out to be uh, certainly a piece of the puzzle that led him to moving to Mercedes. When he did, but I'm going to ask in more general terms, I mean, you've been involved with uh, a lot of these sorts of negotiations. Where are we in terms of absolute brinksmanship here? I mean, is this like the top 1% of brinksmanship you've seen um, (laughs) deals of this size? Or are we actually just like, oh, you know, this is like 75%. We got way long to go before it gets to be really serious card playing. I mean, that's a good question. I think if we can compare that broader to like all sport. As well, like in the context of all sport, would this be rare or weird? Well, you know, even just looking at the general negotiation, what tends to happen with contracts and negotiations full stop, you tend to find that negotiations will like draw on and on and on until there is something that means you have to then come to a deal. And we just saw an excellent example of this with (laughs) the incredibly hurried um, (laughs) trade deal announced between the European Union and the UK. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the only reason that that deal was announced was because there was a ticking clock. Mm -hmm. And um, let's not go into issues around this, of the whys and the wherefores of this. But the whole point is, is the reason why you got that 11th hour deal was because you had to have something in place come 
the 31st of December. Now, in this instance, the ticking clock is the start of the season, and both sides are using that for per, for their own purposes. Um, and, and that is going to be the thing that, that there will come a point where, you know, as the drivers are leaving for Australia, that, that, that's going to be pretty much the, uh, the tipping point. Yeah, I, I think things will have been a little bit unbalanced by the fact that, you know, in this negotiation, there are two very competent Mercedes young drivers stood there in the wings. That's not, I'm not by any means saying that either of them could suddenly find themselves in the car. It's just that when it comes to negotiation, that will be a factor, not necessarily for 2021, but for 2022, 2023. Other teams like McLaren don't have a young driver scheme where you've got that level of pressure, but Mercedes does. And I think that development over the years of having those young drivers is now coming to bear when it comes to the two current drivers. Right. You mentioned a ticking clock, but you also said earlier that Senna drove for almost a year without a, a contract. I know that, like, for example, in, in certain rent regulations here in New York, if you don't sign a new lease, the old lease is presumed to continue on a month to month or a six month basis, depending. Like, I don't know the actual uh, laws regarding it, but is it a similar thing with a driver contract? If they don't come to an agreement, could he just show up and mm-hmm. continue on his old contract on a race by race basis until they get it done? Or is it full? Or is that just going to be his choice? Full stop. If I don't have a contract, I'm not showing up. I, I think that so happens quick, with football, isn't it? There's a fullback where there's just a basic salary. Yeah, I mean uh, it, that might be the case, but in a deal like this, I would anticipate it would be fixed term. Mm. So I very clearly for specific seasons and then specific terms relevant to those specific seasons. I should add as well, actually, just thinking about it, and I meant to bring this up earlier on, uh, there will be other issues that, while they might seem ancillary, are actually, I think, for Lewis, very, very important. One of which is, for example, media days, how often he has to turn up um, and, and yeah. you know do something promotional with the press. His personal time, increasingly, is very, very valuable to him. And not necessarily from the point of view that, oh, I want to go and do my own thing. It's because he knows he needs to take time to recharge, do his own thing. His race preparation, he has demonstrated sometimes, like a few years ago when he ducked out of that F1 promotional event. So he could take his own time to prepare for Silverstone. He turned up at Silverstone. He won the race. He got his championship back on track. So, you know, he wants to have the time to prepare and be a Formula One driver in the way that he has found in recent years works for him. And that means not, you know, necessarily turning up to the opening of a packet of crisps um, for a sponsor. Right. So I, I did want to get your opinion on one more thing. You mentioned that the young drivers are putting a bit of pressure on on Lewis's side. But I'm going to ask, in your opinion, he's got the when is the next time you're going to have a chance to win eight, have someone win eight world driver championships on your mark, especially if the regulations change in 22 we don't know exactly who, I mean, we suspect Mercedes is pretty far ahead, but we don't know. There's no guarantees when you get that kind of a regulation change that the sort of dominance they've enjoyed during these regulations will continue. So how big of a factor is that on Hamilton's side of the equation? And, and, and from a marketing point of view, how could you turn that down, no matter what he's asking? Mm. Uh, that, that, that's a good question, uh, and it is a unique opportunity. Um, I mean, if, if the media reports are to be believed, the fact that a one-year deal has been tabled, I think, also plays into the fact you have that big regulatory change. It will be, I think, playing on his mind as well that, you know, this is going to be the last major deal that Lewis Hamilton signs. Um, I think, that, you know, 
Kimi Raikkonen is showing that the uh, the lifespan of an F1 driver is now significantly longer than it used to be. You can be in your prime, still highly competitive um, into your fourth decade. I don't think that's in question. But the point is, as far as Lewis is concerned, that if he were hypothetically ever to ch- continue changing now, I think it has shown that to be a top flight challenging for championship driver, it takes a few years to get there. New engineer, new team, new setup. You can't, it's not like, 30 years ago, you know, you, you, you put an Ayrton Senna on Alan Prost, change team and suddenly bang, they're winning ch- titles and championships. Um, you know, it does take a few years to, uh, to get up and running. And therefore, the only realistic place where Lewis is going to win races and championships is Mercedes. And therefore, it becomes almost a marriage of convenience between the two if Mercedes wishes to continue its dominance as well. I'm wary of people overplaying the the threat of the young drivers coming through. I mean, Mercedes themselves have talked about how it's Lewis Hamilton's absolutely brutal consistency that helps them to develop a car. And Valtteri Bottas himself, when asked, you know, what is the difference between you and Lewis Hamilton? He himself has openly said it's the fact that he is doing it turn after turn, lap after lap, race after race. He's brutally consistent. Just because George Russell is fast and performed well at, at, Sha- at the Shakir Grand Prix it says nothing uh, to your season-long performance. Uh, Sebastian Vettel is fast, but look at 2017, 2018. He just lacked that edge of consistency and that ended up losing championships to Lewis Hamilton. So I, I, I think whilst Mercedes might be playing their hand to the best of their ability and letting the negotiations go on because they know they've got options... You've, you've got to think Mercedes are, they're not aggressively pushing him out of the door. Like we heard reports that Ferrari essentially offered Sebastian Vettel an insulting contract, but maybe with a number two status and, and forced him to move. I don't think we've got this situation where we've got Mercedes no. laying something on to make him go, well, then I'll just retire. No, I, and I think in the context here, I'm, uh, I'm very much thinking of the element of the young drivers coming to play in 2022, 2023. And it's in terms of who might be alongside Lewis. Um, and that's, that, that, that's where I'm, I'm sort of thinking here, because we know, as I say, a very well-developed Mercedes Young Driver programme, bit of a cue. I mean, uh, it, it's incredible when you think about it. I don't think we've ever had a front-running team like Mercedes thinking about its succession planning and knowing and having already signed up its next two drivers racing on the grid. And we all pretty much know that that's exactly the case. You know, there was never an element of succession with Williams or McLaren or or Ferrari when they were uh, top dog, but Mercedes has been there for so long, and I think it says a, an awful lot about Toto Wolff as a manager that they have built this program and have you know established top flight drivers, these two in Formula One that will come through, and more um, established throughout the uh, the lower Formula as well, and that. Technical regulations permitting, yeah. they're already showing that from the driver perspective, they're thinking about the crucial elements of the driver to stay a force uh, for a, a long time to come. I, I think what we found uh, in the last couple of decades is the best teams with the most funding adapt better to the regulation changes. So I think those hoping for a, a quick demise of Mercedes fortunes are probably in for a disappointment. Obviously, in the short term, Lewis Hamilton can't win his eighth world title next season. So he needs to be around for at least two years because next season is the season of Sergio Perez finally winning his first world championship uh, with Red Bull. I think that's a good place to skip to next. <laughs> stop laughing. Hey, stop mocking me. I can hope, can't I? It's a really interesting deal. Because my feeling in all seriousness, Peter, is that 
Sergio Perez is there to do a very specific job. He is there to be in the pit window of of Mercedes to make things difficult to support Max Verstappen and be a clear number two. Like there will be team orders to to let Max through um, if if um, if there's any kind of hold up. I've no doubt about that. Um, and and I probably would you think that Perez probably knows this? If you know you've got a one year contract, and I'm speculating a little bit, do we know that? If you know you've got a one-year contract, you can take some stuff on the chin, can't you? Um, yes. I mean, I, I forget where I heard it, but I, I think my understanding is it's a one-year deal and that he already had a, a, a drive confirmed for 2022. Oh, okay. So therefore, it was very much this is just a stopgap for 12 months so that he stays on the grid. Um in terms of performance clauses, and is he a definite sort of number two? You, you know, will, will we hear the um, Max is faster than you on on, on the uh, pit to car radio? Mm. Um, I, I would anticipate that it is very much a supporting role, but I think we have to very be very clear that in 2022, Honda are looking at seeing in, in the last year of their engagement in Formula One after a very arduous period since they came in in 2015, they are looking to see if they can win the title. And therefore, signing Sergio Perez to try and contribute the points to both support um, a push for the Constructors' Championship, but also so that, I mean, how often did we see this year the two Mercedes in the distance, Max is there 15, 20 seconds back, coming up to the first stops. They're wanting to have another car, another Red Bull in that gap between Max and the rest of the top of the midfield so that you can then pull the strategy tricks that we know Red Bull like to do aggressive early strategies yeah trying to put the pressure onto Mercedes and they simply weren't able to do that um on a regular enough basis in the last season so that's where this is yeah. coming from and that's why they've brought him into the team oh Matt I can I can see quite a lot of right uh Perez either dip in early because we know you can get those those um those tires to the end of the race and then and then pull Mercedes into something they don't want to do or have him sitting you know covering off not minding an undercut and and just going you know three quarters of the race distance and, and just again just being a wrecking ball um but uh sorry Matt you had a question for Peter well it wasn't so much a question is an observation along those lines is, is I'm just curious if you had put Red Bull's second car behind Max in every single race I'm just curious what the constructors would have actually looked like because mm. it seemed like to me, especially at the end of the year, we had Valtteri finishing multiple, multiple places behind Hamilton on more than a few occasions. And I and I really think that's why he's there. In the races, he's very consistent. He can make overtakes when necessary. And I think they're really looking for someone to finish that place behind Max every time. But from a contract point of view, Peter, I don't think we've seen this kind of utility player signing in a top F1 team for a while, that's going to limit Perez from a a team point of view. You know, he's not necessarily going to be top table, maybe not at all the engineering meetings. Um, I I, I query that because, I I mean, very often when you're putting together your two drivers, you're looking for the right mix. You're looking, whether it might not be on the face of it, you're still wanting someone in that sort of role where you know you can send them both out and they're both going to get maximum points. Sometimes you may have a, a predetermined idea of what that order should be, um, a la Ferrari. Sometimes you're just looking to let them go out and race, which is more the Mercedes way. But in order to do that, they're going to need equal access to the. Certainly, you'd want them to have equipment, but while that isn't the case, you'd certainly want them to have access to uh, as much technical information as possible. But 
In this instance, where it's only 12 months, albeit at the sort of the cigarette end of Honda's involvement, it's not as though they can take, it's not as though Sergio can take engine secrets from Honda uh, that are going to be of particular value um, in, in, in the years coming. But uh, there may be that element where he's very much involved in the pre season and the development and bringing updates, but you can imagine that that might then taper off from yeah. mid season onwards quite, quite possibly. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I think it is kind of standard that when drivers leave, their access to certain technical information gets limited. Uh, but it was interesting to me, like in the past season, if I'm not mistaken, Vettel, I think, was axed out of the meetings almost immediately once they announced he wasn't continuing. But at Renault, with Ricardo leaving, they did the dead opposite. They said, no, he's fully involved. We're not going to keep anything from him because we need him to make our team function at its at, at the best level possible, it's an interesting calculus uh, to think about, especially because we don't know where Perez has signed his next deal for yet, do we? It is a, a good segue because I thought it might be helpful just to do a little, and this is I should uh, emphasize here entirely blind speculation, um, but I think it's quite interesting to do a process of elimination uh, in terms of well, where do we think <laughs> that Perez could be going in twenty twenty two. Um, and feel free to play along with this at home. But uh, let, let's walk through it. Is he going to go to Ferrari? No, they're locked up. We know what their plans are for the coming years. Is he going to go to the, uh, McLaren? Um, well, he's not going to go back there, is he? I don't think after uh, after 2013. Um, obviously, Red Bull, it is a one-year deal. Um, so that, that door is open now, but probably closed. And clearly they'd be wanting to bring in, probably jumping back to their young driver Maybe program Sonoda in, in or the Gasly. future. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. There's a very clear staircase of, of, of talent there, which they're hoping to bring back on stream. Which, and then you think, well, is he going to go to a, a smaller team? Would he have jumped to, to say, um, I ain't going to go to Toro Rosso, or, or sorry, <laughs> Al, Alpha Tarry. I know that's your... I've been listening to Miss Apex for so long, I'm, I'm still calling them that. Um, <laughs> I resemble that <laughs> remark. Yeah. Um, and I, I couldn't really see him going to, to Alpha. Um, but also, I don't think he'd want to go further down the grid. I think mm. he, you know, he's, he's, he's just become a race winner. He's been one of the most consistent, bankable drivers on the grid. And that drew me to the conclusion, I think there's only one possible place he would be going to, and I wonder if you agree. Uh, well... I- You've got to think some new investment. Williams be the leader of the team uh, with alongside Latifi if he still wants to be there. And assuming that George Russell has then gone and replaced Valtteri Bottas, that was my initial working theory. Well, I deliberately left out one of one particular team there from the analysis. And Alpine. 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 Mm, that would be that would be a juicy prospect. I think you, particularly. Yeah. Particularly if they know that at some point Esteban Ocon is going to be getting the call up from Mercedes, if we understand that to be the case. And, and certainly from my, my listening to Miss Apex and your contributors, that's what I understand to be, to be the case. So we've got George and Esteban are there. They're, they are future Mercedes drivers um, at some point yet to be determined in the future, but probably one of them going in in 2022. That could quite conceivably open up the door to there being then a space at Alpine mm-hmm. alongside Fernando Alonso. Oh, I will be all in on Alpine then. Oh my goodness. I, I like me a bit of a fiery Fernando Alonso. Obviously, we know I'm a, a Perez stan. I think I might be all in for Alpine in 2022, Matt. That could be. You think I'm intolerable now? Oh, yeah. you wait. 
I am just uh, I'm marveling, marveling at the um, gymnastics required for you to suddenly support this team that you have <laughs> slated over the years. Oh, I have never ever said a bad word against Alpine. How dare you? That is, Peter, you're a lawyer. That I that. He, I could sue for that, couldn't I? I'm pretty sure I could. Uh, Peter Wright, uh, Digital Law UK, you don't need plugging from us, I'm sure. Um, no one in our audience could afford your extortionate uh, but well-valuable hourly rates, I'm, I'm sure. I, I think you told me once, and I nearly just cried at, at the numbers and, the, and said, why aren't I a fancy lawyer? But it is a Digital Law UK, uh, sorry, Digital Law UK is your firm, is that correct? It is. Dig- mm. uh, digital Law, actually. Um, it's, digital Law UK is the website, oh. but our, our brand is, is Digital Law. And uh, we do advice around law and technology, um, which is a uh, very interesting area. I, I was actually on a, a webinar yesterday where it, lawyers were actually saying this is incredibly a f- an incredibly fast-moving area compared to, say, buying and selling of houses. Um, because it, it's changing all the time. There's currently a lot of changes due to that... that um, uh, Brexit deal we were talking about uh, in terms of data transfers, uh, and actually one of the things that I do actually as well is I, I now do a podcast, a digital law podcast <sighs> each week. So uh, for for those Missed Apex listeners out there, and I know there's one who listens to my podcast and he listens to Missed Apex, um, and uh, and uh, I you know if any of you are interested in things with regards to data, cybersecurity, e-commerce. Um, the the sale of things, goods and services on websites. You know, there's lots of things happening every week there. No shortage of content, believe me. Peter Wright, Digital Law UK website, Digital Law, the company. I'll get it eventually. Thank you so much for your time. Well, Matt, that was a interesting series of interviews. I thought now would be a good time for some listener feedback. I think I can only agree with you Sadly, as far as the show is concerned. Yes, because it would be very awkward to change our plans now. But we've had lovely feedback from our listeners. It isn't all just horrible YouTube comments. Not all. Uh, we get a lot of lovely comments. And doing these re- pre-records gives us an opportunity to go and um, filter through some of them. So if you don't want to hear us just um, talking about these these feedbacks, that's fine. Um, we'll see you next Sunday, where I believe we'll be talking to uh, Joe Saywood in the shed on Sunday. Uh, not live, that'll be a pre-record as well. Uh, not all of these are just, hey, you guys are brilliant. Some of them have got topics attached to them as well. But I'm going to start with one that is at least vaguely complimentary from Ryan Copeland, who says, uh, I loved the latest podcast with Mr. Carter. You, this is how long it takes me to get around to these emails, Matt, because he hasn't been on for a while. Uh, we'll have to no, ask Matthew Carter to come on, actually. We'll, we'll give him a nudge and see if he wants to come and talk to us again. Um, but I have to say, with the emails, I get a little bit overwhelmed sometimes. I, I put a star in them, but I feel like once I read them, if I don't immediately respond, then I'm, I'm not going to respond. So I delay opening them, and then I end up with this backlog. Um, uh, but I, I love the latest podcast with Mr. Carter. Says Ryan, you mentioned something that I've been complaining about recently when you brought up the issue of pay drivers uh, and the 2021 grid perhaps being the weakest that we've seen for a while. And I stand by that, Ryan. Um, At what point does Formula One cease to be a sport? Every sport that I can think of is the purest form of meritocracy that we have as a society today. Football, basketball, baseball, filled with athletes that come from absolutely nothing yet achieve greatness um it it goes on a bit but let's just address those points and thank you very much for your email ryan now then it should be said that with 
other sports, it isn't entirely a meritocracy. I, I know we'd love to have that dream that literally any kid can can rise to the top of any sport, but at some point um, you do have an advantage by being well connected in sport. You know, it's not a coincidence that both England striker, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm forgetting names now, uh, Peter Wright. Have I got that right? Ian Wright. Ian Wright, who's a pundit, you know, uh, for sport. Why did I say Peter Wright? Because we've been speaking to <laughs> Peter Wright. So yep. Ian Wright, yep. England striker, both his adopted children or, or like, you know, stepchildren through marriage became professional footballers. Now, they're both very good, but tell me they didn't have the same, you know, better access to agents, to coaches to, uh, and be put in front of the right people. So before we sort of paint... F1 as being the only non-meritocracy, it does happen in other sports as well. Yeah, and looking at the rest of the email and the fact that he mentions NBA and NFL, I think you may be talking about the wrong kind of football here, my friend. Oh, yes, soccer. Beg your pardon, soccer. Uh, so in F1, obviously, that is exaggerated. But I just wanted to make the point that in, in all sports, you know, if you have access to better coaches, to better conditions to better equipment like cycling is possibly still you could paint that as a very middle class sport because you need access to you know decent equipment um maybe swimming falls into that category as well I, you know i'm spitballing a little bit uh with f1 i think we are at a tipping point it does feel like this problem that everyone oh it's always existed and they say oh nicky lauda he was a pay driver i do think we are entering a different kind of pay driver era you know, I, I had thought about that when, when you originally read it to me. Is I would like to amend it to not so much that it ceased being a meritocracy, but that your skill in bringing money to the sport has never been more important in securing a place on the grid, especially in the midfield. And I know you want to say it's the weakest ever. I mean, no, no, I didn't say weakest we ever so, for a while, for a while. It's the weakest grid we, for a while, undoubtedly. Eh. I don't know. I mean, because you have Hamilton and Verstappen, you have a lot of very, very, very <laughs> good drivers in this field. There's a percentage of the drivers that are there more because of their ability to bring money than their ability to bring driving or because they are in that luck zone where they can definitely bring the money and they might have the talent. You don't really know. So why not take the money in the meantime? Because the money from the driver is guaranteed. The money from championship points is not. And it's that fundamental financial structure of Formula One that we've inherited from the Bernie era. Mm. Once the sponsorships of individual teams collapsed, it's that fundamental structure that still needs tweaking so that they can they can go and find the Ocons, they can find the Hamiltons and the yet-to-be-discovered, and the teams can afford to bring them up through their talent ladders and afford to sponsor them in F2 and F3 and mm. other forms of sport that prepare you for your shot at the big leagues, so, so to speak. The, the super license system kind of helps because what it means is even drivers who we don't rate as being meritocrious, meritocrifal, let's use Lance Stroll as an example. At least Lance Stroll has had to get up to a basic standard where he is, like he is not like the pay drivers of old uh, yeah. who, who are like, you know, seconds off the pace. He, he's up there. He can do the job. I just would argue that he's not, you know, at the level of Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, and Esteban Ocon, Daniel Ricciardo, and probably isn't going to be. But he's been good enough to 
get through with advantages, with extra training, with extra resources and additional chances. So I, I think that there's a, a good chance that the standard Lance Stroll drives to is probably world beating if you put him you know, compared to drivers 40 years ago, which everyone is going to hate. But that's how high the standard is in general. So the super license helps with that. But we could take that further and say, well, actually, let's use the feeder series to not only say super license points to qualify, but actually you've got to have finished in the top four of lots of series or something. You know, so there's some kind of league promotion system, which F2 is not quite filling right now. The key difference in my scenario scenario would be you can't have paid drivers in F1. So you make it in F1 so that there is some some skew that the points, that the money and the points is not from the drivers. So therefore, there's an incentive for the teams to pick up the best drivers. And even if they've managed to pay their way all the way up to F2, they're still not going to be picked up by an F1 team if they can't deliver the lap time. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate uh, the theoretical construct of the idea. The fact that you have to win um, starting maybe in, like I don't know if there's an F4, but you have to win a regional champ. Like once you get above regional racing, once you get mm. to F3 or F2, you have to finish in the top three of a championship in order to qualify to race in Formula One. But the teams will never have that. Mm. They'll they'll vote it down because they want flexibility to bring in someone from Super Formula or someone from this or someone from that. They, and they also need to be able to farm out these drives to other drivers mm. to make money on practice sessions. Most of them do. Obviously, your Mercedes and your Red Bulls, not so much. But once you get down the grid and finally, like, I love the idea. No pay drivers. But OK, I'm going to tell you right now, then Mazapan's not a pay driver. He just comes with a personal sponsor that pays 40 million dollars a year. Um, to be on his overalls and a Haas. Okay, so he's not a pay driver, but his sponsor effectively is just a third-party cutout to him being a pay driver. That's going to mm. be a real difficult problem to to deal with. You and, know what I mean? Yeah, and of course, people like Lance Stroll um, and Latifi, presumably, they have won championships on the yeah. way up, but they've they've also they've managed to leverage advantages in those areas as well. Yeah, well, I mean, and we could talk a little bit about F2 because F2 was originally intended to be a series that you only spent a year or two in. Mm. And now there there are people who are veterans of F2 because if you win it, you can't come back and race in it. But if you finish second or third, you can keep on coming back and keep Mm. on coming back. And I think when people talk about the unfairness of Stroll, it's as you said, I don't think he's on a Ricardo or Ocon level or Hamilton, et cetera. But on a good day, he is there or thereabouts, but what I think if it, I think where your point is most apt is the fact that he was given all the time and support in yeah. the world to reach that developmentally. Mm. And and young drivers coming in today, Sonoda, Albin, Gasly, who don't have that support. Well, how long did Albin get? Yeah, Look, that I'm, was two yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, and done. I'm thinking. I was thinking out loud earlier when I was talking about my promotion relegation system. Got, yeah. I got a bit confused there because, yeah, it's not the winning of the titles on the way up that is necessarily the factor. It's what makes the F1 team select you. Uh, and there needs to be some kind of incentive for F1 teams to pick the best driver. Right now, the incentive is to pick up the funding. Yeah. So in the Indy, in the ladder to Indy, you can start at a driver's school, win, get on the lowest rung of the ladder with sponsorship, win, move up to the next rung of ladder with sponsorship. If you win Indy Lights, 
uh, to my knowledge, unless this has changed, I don't follow indie as closely as I do Formula One. So sincere apologies if I've misremembered that or they've changed it since I last looked. But if you win Indy Lights, you go to a team the next year with enough sponsorship to fund you full for a full season at that team. So Ooh, like you full on yeah. get your chance paid for by the sponsor at okay. the top level. Okay, I've got a way to fix what I know I was saying wrong earlier. Here's my chance to fix it. All right, make F2 also a series where you can't just buy your way in. So to get into F2, you have to win F3. I think that buffer there would you would you have to move the pay competition down two levels to be able to give you a little bit of a buffer because you might be able to buy your way up to F3 for example but if you've then got an F2 which is only made up of people who have scored enough points in lower series then you're going to get a meritocracy feeder series a truly meritocracy feeder series for the F1 people to really have a, a good look and maybe even draft the drivers like they do in the NFL yeah, no, a draft and a draft with sponsors would be the ideal thing. But you have the same problem in F2. F2 is cheap compared to F1, but it is not cheap by any other no. standard. All right. Well, look, that wasn't the best argument I've ever made. Don't be too mean in the comments, but do feel free to correct me. But look, when we get um, comments and stuff on YouTube and people complain sometimes if they get moderated, that's because just, just, just you know, there's a difference between, hey, uh, I think you got that point wrong, and here's where what I might have said. And oh my god, you're such a you're such a nobed. Why'd you do that? You're the worst. If it leads with that, we are probably going to moderate those comments a little bit in the YouTube comments and on the live chat. Uh, but w- please don't mistake that for not wanting debate. We absolutely love debate. Help us form this argument. And a lot of times we take on feedback we get where we've got things wrong, and we love that. We appreciate it. That's one of the best things about the live chat is they can correct us in real time. Yeah, it is. And and it's an important thing to understand. Like when you make a comment and it gets moderated, it's because we are not just sitting here talking about a subject. Mm. We're sitting here doing nine other things simultaneously. And if you are disturbing our balance, our equilibrium, yeah. then then we will give you a timeout. But yeah. don't take it as personally as we hate you and we hate your feedback and we never want to hear from you. Just understand that at that moment, that was yeah. the that was the that was the straw that was going to break what the camel's back. Yeah, into and the production um, process. Yeah, and also I get a bit defensive if people insult the panel at all. So I love the live chat. If you come in there and like comment on negatively on someone's physical appearance, I'm probably just gonna gonna swing a ban hammer. And we have mods there who help look after us. Um, I love the energy of the live chat map, but I've come to a slight change in in approach in that. Last week, when we had live stream problems, turns out it was at YouTube's end, uh, we think. But a lot of names in the live chat that we don't normally hear from were suddenly very, very angry at us for not being able to provide the live stream that we we normally could. And, uh, you know, not particularly nice about it, not particularly sympathetic. And it was just, it was very stressful. And we can take that stress every now and then. But what I realized is, Actually, as great as the live chat is, that big energy, all out live, open to anyone affair actually does take a toll. And I do occasionally need a little bit of a break from that. So whilst we're going to keep the vast majority of the the streams we do completely open to everyone um, and definitely all the race reviews, I'm going to have a few more patron only ones because 
those people are invested in the show and they're less likely to just sit there and kind of heckle from the back. However, I'm, I'm really trying hard to not make it a paywall. So what I'm going to do on the Patreon is introduce a one penny tier, a one penny a month tier that means that you will access all the live streams. It's just that small bit of emotional investment to say, right, at least if you went to the effort of going to patreon.com forward slash missed apex, then maybe you're less likely to do that just so that you can echo from the side. So you, yeah, you're yeah. less likely to show up yeah. randomly and give us a hard time about a thing. Yeah, so I'm not saying by any means it won't even be like half the streams. We're just going to move some more of the streams to being patron only just to give us a bit of a, a bit of a bit of breathing space. But like I said, one penny tier, patreon.com forward slash missed apex the one penny tier will be the uh, all access live stream pass you'll get a link sent to you every single week uh ian says hey spanners my name is ian i tune in from montreal canada hello montreal eh uh, you guys had mentioned you're planning on coming here for the grand prix next year i'd be happy to help the team out with planning navigation of the city and anything else you might need what's a what a lovely lovely offer um you've also mentioned on numerous occasions how you took a break from engineering and focused on building mist apex um i've been thinking of a career change myself uh can i pick your brains you absolutely can uh ian and uh, by the way if you email us there is a strong chance it will get read out so apologies if i was not meant to read that out but yes pick my brains absolutely and I do hope there's a Canadian Grand Prix for us to go to. <laughs> yeah, well, and maybe not read his last name if you're going to yeah. read out his planning to cre- career change. I mean, I sincerely doubt that his okay. job will find out through that. Okay, but well, what, let's beep. Let's add a beep. There'll be a beep in there. <laughs> what amazes me most is that you have read the entire email except for the last line, which says that he listens to Tech Time. How is it possible you skipped that? I can't even see that line. I cannot even see that line. Uh, I just want to correct one thing, though, uh, because ah. in case this is a misconception, unfortunately, no, I wasn't able to leave a stable engineering job to do an F1 podcast full time. I-, I wish it had worked out like that. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So skip skip forward two minutes if you don't care. Um, what happened was, I think it was sometime in 2018, is that I had opportunities to go and do a bunch of cover shifts on radio. And it, I knew it was always going to be a kind of temporary thing. I had my weekly show but I kept being asked to fill in for various uh, presenters just while there was a, a a changing of the guard, if you like, and and there was some spanner shapes shaped gaps for me to go into. But it it turned out that they were just a little more than I could handle because I was like, okay, I can take a couple of days holiday. Yeah, sure, I can cover for that. Then it turned into a week. And before I knew it, I was like taking all of my like five, six weeks leave on doing media work, be it commentary, radio, etc. So I actually had to choose to say no to stuff or take a gamble and just go for it. And I was terrified, Matt, that if I said no to anything, the whole presenting media dream would just get taken away. So I ended up just saying yes to everything and going, right, well, it's now or never. And just diving out of uh, diving out of the plane without a parachute, hoping I'd find one on the way down. Yeah, no, that's the classic free- freelancer's dilemma is mm. you always Feel like you have to say yes to everything because the moment you say no they'll never call you again they'll call the person who said yes instead and it, it's a real it's a real thing and it's one of the most challenging things about having a career that is sort of piecemeal mm. like that yes and, and now i very much have a piecemeal career and i think it paid off because i have a i think a reasonable relationship with that radio station they still hire me to come in once a week and i still get cover shifts like i did over the christmas holidays as well so i think that's a gamble that paid off the wonderful thing about Missed Apex 
and the fact that we have ad revenue and Patreon support is that for me and Matt, it covers our production hours. We've always been very keen to say the bit where we just talk and go, blah, 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 isn't Formula One great? That still remains as our hobby hobbyist part of it. But um, there is also a lot of production work and preparation and editing and putting stuff out um, where our freelance time is covered. And what it means is we very rarely, although Matt will prioritise a gig and I will prioritise probably if anyone wants to offer me live TV, anyone, what it does mean is that Mr. Apex has a place in my freelance calendar. I don't have to go, oh, uh, I can't do Mr. Apex this week because I need to get an audio book out so that we can have food. Yeah, and to be fair, I, I would probably prioritize live TV too if anyone <laughs> offered it to me. They just haven't yet. Yeah. So what's wrong with you? Come on, come on, come on, come on. And so a combination of uh, of that, uh, continuing radio, and then the third leg has been just a random assortment of wonderful things where we've got audiobooks coming out. We, I've done some commentary. I've done consulting. Uh, I've, I've put on webinars for people. A mis- mismatch of uh, everything I can find within media to just claw in. So it's like having 20 different tiny little jobs. Uh, a buffet, a meze of media work that at the moment I have to say, yeah, go and just about survivable, just about all right. I uh, In 2020, I only applied for four engineering jobs in a wild, sweaty panic. So, so far, so good. Uh, brilliant. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash Mr. Apex. Uh, you'll get an ad-free feed. You can join us in the Slack group. Um, or what else can you do? Oh, the Patreon-only content as well. And you'll get, of course, the live stream tiers that we were talking about earlier. Got some wonderful emails from Aaron as well, who said that he has been uh, going back and listening to all our race reviews since 2017 wow okay don't tell anyone what you heard i'm sure i flipped the contrast i would guess <laughs> i'll bet hopefully aaron you found that we've improved steadily uh, aaron says uh, cheers mate for the great show and all the best with your future plans for the show and we've also had a, a lovely email from from david from the netherlands uh, who says, especially in these dark days, it's been a real comfort to have a kind voice in your head. And I just wanted to let you know that um, he said he's been enjoying our show on Spotify. Oh, my show, Spanners 90s Radio, as well. And and this is the other tier to our multifaceted freelance work that we do here is that we want to leave ourselves enough time to throw stuff at the wall. So we also have an iRacing podcast that's come out, Spanners 90s Radio, Remain Indoors, and all sorts of projects that hopefully, wh- hopefully one of them grabs onto a a vine and grows like an ivy up into the sky or something like that i think that'll do us for today get in touch spannersready at gmail.com or matt pt55 at gmail.com yep yeah. absolutely follow matt at matt pt55 on twitter me at spanners ready we hope you have a wonderful week and wherever we see you next work hard be kind and have fun this was Mist Apex. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.